people that have hardly been able to make it through the economic crisis, let alone the pandemic, in a in a literally a blink of an eye, everything came down to the ground, and that is more devastating than than all of the combined years of civil war that we had to, we had to go through, because it literally took an instant. I'm Danny Valant, and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. This fortnight on Dirty Linen, we are traveling all around the world, which I'm really enjoying because I'm very stuck here in Melbourne. I think we're here in stage four, I'm in lockdown. It's easy to feel like we've got it tough, but honestly, (laughs) compared to people like Jade George, who we're going to be talking to today, who is in Beirut, in Lebanon, things actually seem pretty okay here in Melbourne. Jade is a publisher. She's She launched The Carton, a, a publication about Middle Eastern food culture, um, eight years ago or so. And she's a partner in Calais Coffee, which was founded by Dahlia Jafal. Um, and Calais Coffee has two locations in Beirut. One of them was very badly damaged in the awful explosion of the night of August or the day of August 4, I believe it was. I think it was the evening here. Anyway, Jade. Hello, and thank you so much for taking time to talk to us all the way over here in Australia today. Hi, Danny. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Um, it's difficult to say. It's really ups and downs these days. There's so uh, I mean, I'm I'm very far from an expert on Lebanon. I am a you know I'm a reader of the news, but it's even if you just I, I suppose summarize the situation in Lebanon, it's. Um, it feels like a place where there's always so much happening. There's so much political upheaval, cultural upheaval. And even if we look at what's happened in, in Lebanon in the last six months, it feels like enough for a century of, of news and history and um, things for people to deal with. Can you take a little bit of time and put your situation in some kind of context for us? Yes, um, it's important to start uh by giving the rest of the world some context on Lebanon today. Um, And I'll try to be as brief as possible. Um, For the sake of the gravity of what we're in right now, I'm going to fast forward through the part about the 15 years of Lebanese civil war that started in 1975. Um, Last October, uh, forest fires ignited in the Lebanese mountains, something you're familiar with. Uh, It was very badly handled by the government. Uh, You find out things like the existence of two helicopters that are meant to be allocated for these kinds of disasters that were not even maintained and therefore not functional at all. Uh, I'll spare your audience a lesson in geography. Uh, We are ruled by a corrupt political class and have succumbed to foreign interference and meddling since the formation of the country that is known as Lebanon today. An inevitable economic collapse started to take tangible shape uh, due to a system of debt concocted after the civil war that's connected to our sole reliance on funds uh, like the IMF and also due to sanctions that have choked the country's economy. Not to forget sanctions imposed on Syria, which directly crushes Lebanon's economy because we heavily rely on their industry, among other sectors. We had a run on the banks, which led to a major currency devaluation um, by around 80 percent. 
people took to the streets. Uh, the toying with political agendas escalated very fast. And just like the rest of the world, we were hit by a global pandemic uh, leading up to the events of August 4, an occurrence that we're all going to suffer the repercussions of forever, I would say. Um, for a bit of perspective, to anyone who's never visited Lebanon or doesn't know much about it, what happened on August 4th is not normal for a country like Lebanon, whatever biased propaganda media tells you. It's essential for the world to understand that events like the Beirut blast is not a default way of living in Beirut. We go about our lives as anyone does in any quote-unquote functional city in the world. We grab our laptops, sit at coffee shops for hours, finish our deadlines, head out for a drink with friends any day of the week, among other things, of course. We've got a lot of foreigners that choose to live in the country and many tourists at any given time of the year that flock over to explore our food and wine culture, um, hike the Lebanon mountain trail, explore the archaeology, experience the nightlife of Beirut that everybody talks about. Um, the Beirut blast took place in what is, um, to many people, the heart of the city, where many of us live, work, socialize at any given time of the day or night. Uh, it is where some of Beirut's most prominent uh, art galleries, uh, design studios, bookshops, etc. Uh, have been running for many years. Uh, as I said, it's uh, it's going to be ups and downs for uh, all of us. Um, the only way to have, to have coped in the last uh, couple of weeks, it's been two weeks now, uh, is to kind of like help out whoever was worse off than you. Uh, and I think it's just a coping mechanism. Um, but that's, that's really, that's really a nutshell of what's been going on. Oh, it's, I mean, it's so much. I think it's so important, Jade, that you make the point that this isn't something that you just, people there know how to deal with. Um, I think when a, a lot of people would know that Lebanon has been marked by civil war and unrest, but that doesn't mean that you can uh, take anything that's thrown at you or that something can be just part of the the run of um, of other difficult things that comes uh, to, yeah, to confront people. What was it like? Where were you when the blast happened? Um, I was at Calais in the location in Man Michael, uh, which means Saint Michael in uh, in Arabic. Um, it's that region that I just mentioned. Um, both me and Dalia were in the shop uh, amongst with the the staff that are on shift that were on shift uh, around that time, along with a lot of our regulars. We actually had a full house. I think people were really sick of being locked down and um, we were following whatever measures for COVID that we needed to follow in those couple of weeks of reopening because we've been going through, you know, like closure and then reopening and some measures of how to reopen. And it was uh, truly a full house that day. Um, um yeah yeah it was it was um it was heavy it was a heavy load that day 
And did you know that there was a fire um, down at the port bef- that preceded the explosion? Was that something that was sort of known throughout the city or was it just you, the first thing you knew about it was that there was a blast? Not at all. Actually, I was having a conversation about Chardonnay with somebody and um, and then we started hearing uh, we started hearing an aircraft, to be honest, which is also a big thing that people are debating whether they, he- they heard some kind of air- aircraft flying over uh, seconds before the first explosion. Um, and uh, the second we heard that, I mean, me and Dalia are familiar with it, having lived through different kinds of attacks in the country. Um, and we, we walked over to each other and kind of like exchanged looks like, no, come on, this is not happening. And, uh, you know, like being uh, being the, 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 the pilot, you know, like on the cruise, we had to just like go out to inspect to make sure no one's in danger. So we started walking out of the gate of the shop um, through the garden. And uh, that's when we heard the first explosion. We kind of like were startled and we started, we looked up and we started to see uh, smoke um, very close to Calais. Like everybody we talked to after the blast told us that um, they thought that they were personally being attacked. It, it, it was so immense that everyone thought that they were particularly targeted. Wow. And the first thought, like in that split second, was what is like what is being targeted here? There's nothing here, you know. Like we actually had a few, like a bit of like split uh, splits of seconds to think about, to actually like analyze. Um, and uh, before we knew it, the, the 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 big, you know, what is known as the bush, mushroom blast now um, went off, and it was like a full blackout for a few seconds, like before you like look because we kind of like projectiled and um, before we opened our eyes to like just basically check that our limbs are still there and like just ran to the closest people to us, just looked at everybody, whoever was wounded, we tried to make sure uh, got to a hospital and. Sadly, we were because we thought it was like an an attack, and we were almost certain of it. Um, we were waiting for the next one, so it took us up to like forty five minutes to find out that there was actually an explosion at the port, uh, because literally people thought in different regions of the city, if not the country, thought that the explosion was just next to them. Oh, that's just so shocking. Uh, were there was there phone coverage like was it was you able to get any information or was it just a complete mystery and yeah just a horror show um i think because everybody was kind of running to secure the people around them um the last thing you want to do is to pick up your phone right so the first thing you do is mm-hmm. you know mom and dad a you know partner i'm okay I'm alive. Uh, then you just like toss your phone and you start running to the first person in need. Um, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's crazy how everybody kind of described their experience almost identical to the next person. Um, and like when I when when I when I said it from my perspective, I realized it wasn't just my perspective. Everybody was feeling the same thing. But as soon as everybody sorted themselves out and walked out in the street, it was literally. Um, it was like the apocalypse in the city. We've never, ever seen the city. And everybody that's lived anything, the civil war, any kind of war, um, described it as a one of a kind um, happening. It was literally like, um, you know, you're like out of a movie. It was, it was, it was, it was, 
um, un- you couldn't understand. Your mind couldn't fathom what you were seeing. Um, and we're we're still, I mean, dealing with these images till today. Um, so as soon as as soon as the first person picked up a phone. It was all over every news. I mean, local news uh, as well. I mean, it was probably closest to reality. Um, and uh, we realized that the, 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 the explosion actually happened only at the port. And slowly we started to gather, you know, like how what happened. Um, sadly, because of the first explosion, a lot of people rushed to their windows or balconies to, to check out what was going on. Anybody that's gone through... Um, you know, like that's got some kind of traumas from previous wars was like quick to kind of hide thinking something else was going to happen. But sadly, that's not what the majority of the population would do. Um, and because of how huge the blast was, um, people even outside the city uh, or the proximity of the city center um, got badly harmed because of whatever broke in their house. So mostly a lot of glass, you know, like the sound of glass breaking will never be the same again, I think, for anyone that experienced this. Um, And people got harmed from, you know, like just like like projects flying over because of how strong the blast was and just hitting the wrong thing. And in parallel, there were so many stories of how miraculously the rest of us who made it, um, um, how close we were to not making it. Is that how you felt personally? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I could have been two centimeters back or front or, um, but I wasn't. Um, and, you know, it just shows you that, you know, it's, it's, it's just all, um, you know, like, um, unfathomable, really. I mean, um, just how fragile life is. Tell me about Calais Coffee and this kind of space that you'd created. I've, I've definitely helped uh, create Calais. Uh, Calais was founded, like you said, by Dalia Jafal. Um, and her vin- vision was so um, honest and humble and um, um really spot on for what Beirut kind of always needed. And in 2015, she really saw this place uh, as a place, kind of like a third space for people um, in Lebanon, because uh, we have um, we have a, a huge um, population of freelancers, designers, artists that don't necessarily have um, like a full-time job. And um, I mean, I don't need to explain it to you. Obviously, a lot of people need a space to kind of work and have a good cup of coffee. And in parallel, there's just because we are a people that are extremely sociable. Um, I mean, we like to be out out with friends. Um, that's like the reason for us to consume even. Um, this is why also the global pandemic affected us a lot because we're not a... Uh, we're not a country that really runs on, you know, um, home deliveries and online shopping. We're very much about like, going out and meeting people and picking up our own food. And uh, it's all really social. Um, and in 2016, the first Calais um, coffee roastery was um, um, launched in Marmichael in the Ashafia region. region. Um, and... Um, it's uh, it's basically a coffee roastery. Uh, Dahlia sources some of the most uh, ethically sourced 
Um, and the best beans, honestly, that I have sampled anywhere in the world. And uh, she roasts them on site along with her team of roasters. Um, it happens to be um, like kind of like an old Lebanese house uh, with a garden wrapped around the, the front yard. Um, the reason for choosing this place for her was because we have a huge lack for public spaces in the city. Um, and so people from all walks of life just come to Calais for different reasons, to have good coffee, um, and, and some not even to have a cup of coffee, just like kind of to be in this place. Uh, people have built a very, very solid relationship with the team, from every single person on the team, really. And, um, you know, that the support we've been getting in the last two weeks is proof of the impact that, that this place has had on people, even people that have visited Beirut just once in their life. Well, the way that I heard about Calais was through Tom Serafian and Joseph Abood at Bar Saracen in Melbourne and through a, a hummus fundraiser where they, um, yeah, sold hummus to contribute to your um, re rebuilding campaign or, or, a, or a campaign you're you're donating funds to NGOs in Beirut, is that right? We're actually, uh, we just started a fund. We were really tossing. I mean, in the early days of, of, of when everything happened, um, I mean, we, we were very aware that we are not able to rebuild it ourselves. Like that was out of the question. And uh, we really tossed, I mean, we're we're not, we're not very great at asking people for money. Um, we're, we're, to us, everything needs to be justifiable. We don't like to ride the boat uh, whenever an opportunity raises itself. But at the end of the day, we have a team of over 25 employees uh, that have invested themselves into our company and that we've personally invested uh, into emotionally as well. Um, and we had this huge responsibility. It wasn't about the place nor us as the people who were involved in the place from the get-go. And um, after a few days of discussing it, uh, we decided to just like put it out there. You know, we brought someone to assess the damages and we just put it out there not thinking um, anything of it uh, or not making much of it. And honestly, the, 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 the support is... Um, is really incredible. Um, we've, we've seen great support uh, from abroad, whether it be the diaspora or otherwise. It might have toppled over any other kind of help towards the Lebanese people. Uh, Joe Aboud uh, of Bar Saracen is an old friend of mine, um, and uh, he's been an, an avid reader of the carton and a, and really a great supporter. And I've met Tom uh, more recently. Uh, he actually came to um, uh, Beirut before opening Bar Saracen on his kind of like expedition to explore food from the region. And um, he, he's a really an honest and, um, um, you know, like really understands uh, how important food culture is. And, um, and, you know, the, 
we had huge smiles on our faces, uh, like faces that haven't smiled in a while when we saw like what they came up with, because we're very aware of what Melbourne has been going through, both uh, economically, specifically on the food and beverage front in the last few years, and then the pandemic hitting it as well. And um, maybe they personally didn't have the means to support, but they kind of creatively find found a way to support. They've raised what I believe is 20,000 uh, Australian dollars yeah. for the Lebanese Red Cross. And uh, they're like uh, double whammy was um, selling, auctioning um, a plate of hummus, uh, uh, which ended up selling at like 600 Australian dollars, which we just had to laugh about. But they're, they're, they're awesome boys. Well, they are. They are amazing. And I remember when Joe first showed me the carton, I think it was, yeah, one of the early issues and he he held it like, uh, like uh, I don't know, a talisman or a prize or a promise, you know, it was uh, to have, um, I guess, something contemporary that was speaking to about the, the huge heart and history of Middle Eastern cuisine means so much to the diaspora as well as to people um, who are who are there living it, of course. Um, so I think it's definitely been a really, yeah, really important publication for people in, I'm sure, you know, certainly in Melbourne, I'm sure in many other places around the world. And when I asked Tom what I should chat to you about, he, he said, Jade is an absolute legend. And he spoke incredibly highly of the way that you showed him around town and to the rest, you know, to the rest of bakeries, the wineries, and, and just giving him a bit of a primer on Lebanese culture. Um, yeah, we, we've had some like, um, um, like, he was he was really big on awful Tom when he was here. Um, anything that was like from the insides of an animal, he was up for having. Um, I always had like a long introduction of, "Are you sure you want to have this?" And he's he was always the first to jump, and he just he's really curious about about anything and everything, and he really doesn't do anything, you know, half-assed. So, um, yeah, I mean. Really, um, food culture is, uh, you know, people always ask me, my, my, uh, the last 12 years of my career have been in food culture and, um, politics and food, um, I don't need, I don't need to be, I mean, I won't be the first to state this are one and the same. They're intertwined, um, and, and food and culture, food and so- sociopolitics, food and anthropology. And, you know, you being food journalists, I think can, attest to that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, food is food intersects brilliantly, beautifully, troublingly with every aspect of humanity. And I guess to your list, I would also add, you know, to the environment. Um, it's just, it, yeah, food is such a great way of connecting with people because it intersects with every single aspect of life. Uh, and it's endlessly rich and it's um, endlessly offers opportunity for connection and for learning. And, yeah, I learn many things every day because I continue to be fascinated by food and continue to learn, yeah, just to continue to realise how ignorant I am and how much more there is there is to know. And, um, yeah, I I still haven't been to Lebanon, so that is, that is still ahead of me. And anything that Tom ate, I promise that I'll eat as well. <laughs> um, yeah, Lebanon. I mean, um, we are from this place. Um, we are a group of people who have. Uh, we we were we are we're 
we're not a group of people that have immigrated to a land from all parts of the world. This place is ours um, and we're here to stay and we're here to welcome everybody um, that has any curiosity about discovering this place. Mm. There was something that was written on the carton and also the Calais Coffee Instagram uh, your your first post after the explosion and it, and it was the thought of rebuilding is definitely not our first instinct because we reject the idea that our people should continue to accept to be called resilient at the price of starting over and over again this way. What does that mean? Um, you know, resilience uh, more than ever is proving to be a very um, dangerous word um, because if you just, you know, plaster that word on uh, anyone that you just like keep knocking down and asking them to stand up again, you're just raising the bar of what they will and will not accept. And you're assuming that they will accept anything at any cost. And, you know, quote unquote, the Lebanese people will figure it out and rise again. It doesn't matter what the cost is. And it's the first thing I said um, in our conversation is this is not something that we're used to doing. This is not something that we concern ourselves with. Uh, on a daily basis. You know, we're just like anybody who just goes to pick a vase for their table at their home uh, from an expensive place or non-expensive place um, and just go about our lives just like anybody. And resilience, um, because um, it kind of surfaced on the first few days of the Beirut blast, uh, we we really felt like that it needed to be questioned um, because um, like I said, even if we do rise again, um, surely we're not going to just give up our country. Like I said, we are from this place. We we can't just up and go any, anywhere else. Even if another door opens up to us, it is this is where we're from, and this is um, this is home essentially. Uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, we will accept, you know, to um, you know to be applauded for being knocked out and to stand up again to rebuild if if that makes any sense yeah is it like you you want to be allowed to break as well and to be devastated and to not bounce back is it is it something like that um yeah but also it's also a, um a way of saying no to these things happening to us um there is absolutely, absolutely no human reason for this to happen to people from any part of the world. Um, and unfortunately, like I said, in, in, in uh, Western media, Lebanon's portrayed as like a red flag war zone um, when it really isn't. And, you know, it, it's, uh, it's very important to contextually understand um, where we are and our geopolitics and what's been happening for the last few decades, even from World War II, I would go that far back to understand why the Lebanese people endure this um, and uh, or, or why the Lebanese people have had to endure this. And I, th I think there is absolutely no reason for people from any part of the world to accept something like this happening to them. And um, and I think it's also important for the rest of the world to kind of open their eyes and minds to things beyond what is, you know, uh, being portrayed in immediate media or mass media. What would you like people to do to, to read more deeply or to 
one of the reasons, well, the reason really that I wanted to talk to you was as to to uh, to learn more and for people to listen and to learn and to understand. And I think there is, it's so easy to uh, put big disasters and events that happen on the other side of the world into the bucket of, you know, things that happen to other people. And I think it's really important for Australians, uh, everybody, but let me talk about Australians who sometimes some people turn, turn other people into something else, something that it couldn't happen to us. It's not me. It's nothing to do with me. And I think it's really important to, yeah, just stand together in in our humanity and to realise that, no, this isn't okay. It's not okay for Lebanese. It's not okay for for anybody to go through what you're going through. Yeah, I mean, um, like I'll give you an example to kind of, you know, put things in context. When this happened and people from around the world rushed to – to even so much as feel with us what uh, what we were going through, uh, they were quick to uh, you know um, refer to the Notre Dame in Paris, the the fire that happened, and um, you know like it just like to give you a bit of context that it, it, what happened in Beirut in this particular blast, leaving every other tragedy that's happened to us on the side is not a building or a monument or a historical church burning down. Um, I think it's very important um, to understand that there's always, always two sides to every story. And um, media specifically, and coming from background in media, media when in a given era is controlled by someone versus another, so the story of one side gets through um, faster or in a, in a way more uh, embellished way than another, I think every human being should look at the other side of the coin, even if it were just out of curiosity. So explain why the Notre Dame thing is, is so different to what you've experienced and what you're going through. I mean, putting aside the the human human losses, uh, the loss of culture that is beyond just one building, but multiple collection of um, heritage sites, art, uh, young um, design studios that have been really struggling in the economic crisis to make it for the last 10, 12, 15, 20 years. Um, people who have lost people, people that have lost their homes, people that are literally in their 70s and 80s that have endured everything that this region has sadly ha- had to endure and, and just losing it um in, in literally um, in an instant, you know, you before the Beirut blast, I told you I was literally discussing genres of wine and I had to close my eyes and open my eyes and find my city in rubbles. Uh, I find my people um, struggling for their lives, losing their lives, losing their loved ones. Um Historical buildings that have had have ha- have gone through a lot to be able to sustain or rebuild or survive. Um, people that have hardly been able to make it through the economic crisis, let alone the pandemic. In a in a literally a blink of an eye, everything came down to the ground, and that is more devastating than than all of the combined years of civil war that we had to, we had to go through because 
it literally took an instant. Well, there's, there's so much that I want to unpack in what you've said. Um, I think one thing is when I think about Notre Dame, I think that it's a contained, I mean, tragedy. It, it's a contained accident and you just know that it's going to get fixed. You know that uh, concerned people and the machine, the machinery of government will just, it'll get sorted out. And I think what's happened with the Beirut blast, I don't think there's a feeling after it of, of a, a clear path forward. I mean, in the days after the blast, the, the government, resigned it's it's not getting it's not necessarily getting cleaned up things are still messy and it doesn't seem like there's an obvious way to tidy things up and move forward and as you say there's still that we're in a pandemic and if, and it, it it it's it shows how massive everything else is that the pandemic barely even sneaks into this conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're about to embark on a two-week uh, lockdown as of this Friday. Um, we're, we're not sure if it's because, I mean, the hospitals got a really big hit from the, from the blast. And um, uh, we, we were amongst the first countries to actually take proper measures um, towards, um, you know, everything related to the pandemic because our hospitals were not equipped uh, for an outbreak. Although Lebanon is known to be a country uh, that's big on medical tourism in the region. So not to say that there's our hospitals aren't good hospitals or that our doctors aren't good doctors, but uh, we weren't prepared for a pandemic like that. And uh, we, we, went, we went into two-month lockdown and it was really, really contained. Um, and then the upsurge started after the blast because obviously people kind of uh, were helping each other and intermingled. Um, and uh, and um, there was like, kind of a, we've peaked a little bit. Uh, we're still at um, four or 500 a day, which is a lot in art in terms of what Lebanon's had to go through through with, with COVID, but not uh, compared to other countries. Um, but so we're getting into a two week for now uh, lockdown as of this Friday. Uh, it could also be for, for security reasons. Um, but yeah, I mean, you mentioned the government resigning. That's really, I mean, it's not really a, a reflection of anything because we've had a series of resignations. And like I said, we have a very corrupt government um, that is a product of many, many things, mostly foreign interventions. And um, um, I think it's uh, it's just, it's a major time for, for change. I don't, I'm not talking about, Lebanon only. Um, I'm talking about globally. I mean, it's for me at least. It is clear that uh, we are in a post-globalization, uh, post-capitalism era. Um, and you know what? We've seen what the last half a decade has left us with on a humanitarian, on an environmental and social front, uh, to say the least. Um, I, I would say it is unarguably a time for drastic change. Can you see that playing out in a positive way? Um, I mean, uh, if you look at the world in the last few years, um, 
you know, I, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to take my chances. <laughs> um, that's great. I'm really, really heartened to hear you say that. Um, Jade, you spoke about Calais as a, as a third place that, um, that Dahlia and, and yourself have created. It's so important in a time of crisis that people have those, those third spaces, even among destruction and even in when there's lockdowns of, of various types and, and strengths. What do you, where do you see the place of your third place now and the project of reclaiming it and, and sharing it with your community? Um, you know, it, one of the strangest things we witnessed um, the day after August 4th is um, we had one of our staff members take this, the, the cell phone of the place back home with him. And he just uh, called us up to tell us, uh, um, guys, people are calling asking if we're open, like, wanting to come by and others knowing that we got a big hit uh, asking if they can come come by and help remove the rubble and clean up and um i think um i mean we're not we're we're not ready to let go of um of at least what what this place represents um and uh you know, with the help of everybody that's aided uh, in the last two weeks through this fund that we finally decided to just put out there, um, we are going to be able to at least financially afford to do so. Um, and, you know, um, even the people that were in the in the in the in Calais that day, um, you know, the first thing the first thing we all wanted to do right after the blast is to just go back to that place to make sure to to be very very sure that we are not traumatized from the place that the trauma does not come from being in that place that the trauma is a citywide trauma and regardless of where you were. Um, this was going to happen to you and it 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 um it was like really heart opening to see how a lot of the people that were there that day just came by although the place was has been closed to just stand outside the gate to say you know what i'm making peace with that moment and that place but it has i'm not willing to make peace with why this happened who caused it and you know, like the, 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 everything that was lost, um, in the, you know, in the aftermath of the, of the explosion. That is so powerful. And in the, you know, you said earlier that when the blast was occurring, that everybody felt like it was directed at them. And then to be able to step back from that and to recreate it as, as a shared experience across a whole city is really, yeah, it's just, a very powerful thing to think about. It feels very, very human. Wow. Um, Jade, I don't know what to say. I haven't been. Yeah. Is there anything that you want to say? It's just. I know. It's, uh, I think it's, it's probably your heaviest episode, huh? <laughs> well, I mean, there's stuff happening all around the world, but I think the crush of events and the really complex context of the situation in Lebanon and the fact that you're in the midst of a lot, so many things. Uh, and I have to say that you're so articulate about it and, um, yeah, I'm, yeah, I take my hat off to you. I would, I would put on a hat just to take it off to you. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, I, I would say, I just have to say, I'm one amongst many. I'm one amongst um, maybe a million. So I don't want to take a credit for the whole thing. I think the whole Lebanese people deserve credit for for even like just going back down on the street the next morning to to clean and to help, which should have been a government thing to do. But actually the people cleaned every, everything and they started their own in- initiatives outside of everything, outside of NGOs or organized efforts. Um, and, and they really deserve a, a hat off. Yeah, well... Yeah, to everybody there, all the hats, all the all the hats off, all the hummus, all the everything. Um, Jade, tell me uh, when I come to Beirut, what what are you going to take me to eat? What am I going to enjoy? Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I mean I know that Tom makes a kick-ass hummus, so I don't think that will be the thing I will take you to try, but. Um, um, for sure, since you're up for awful, uh, that, that's something that you're going to experience. Um, we're going to um, explore the Armenian neighborhoods, which are a prominent part of the Lebanese culture uh, and food culture as well. And um, you're definitely going to come and have a cup of coffee at Calais once we rebuild it. Definitely. Definitely. I can't wait. Uh, thank you so much for just spilling some energy in our direction I I really really appreciate it I really honor your story and I'm really grateful to you for teaching us more about your experience Um, we'll put the link to your fundraiser in the in with the episode and yeah just um, I just wish you all the best let's stay in touch and let's um, hear more about the journey as it continues but thanks so much Jade Thank you, and my love to the people of Australia. I hope I hope everybody gets through this uh, global pandemic, and um, you know is not forced to close down or let people off. Um, so yeah, my love. Thank you so much. This is Dirty Linen, and I'm Danny Valant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.